Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> And welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I am your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Well, Sid, some exciting news on the uh, COVID front. Not the present situation, which is uh, dire. Yes. Um, yeah, I hope I hope everybody is staying safe out there as much as you can. Stay home. If you can't, wear your mask when you go out, social distance. Also, remember um, that depending on the state you live in, your governor or government may not be looking out for you. So mm-hmm. don't necessarily take their guidelines to be uh, the safest practices. You need to be responsible for yourself and your family. Yeah. I, staying home and staying safe. Back when all this started in March, I feel like a lot of people were being really cautious and taking it very seriously. And I understand that fatigue has set in. Mm. Um, but I would say that for a lot of us who are in states that weren't initially impacted strongly, we now need to take it that seriously and be just as cautious as everyone was back in March. Yes, if not more so. But we're not doing a whole episode about that. No, ma'am. No, it just, uh, the the announcement from Pfizer, which I'll talk a bit about at the end of the show, about their vaccine progress, uh, which is good, Mm -hmm. good news overall. That's the the, um, TLD... R. There it is. Look at you. <laughs> is that the 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 Let announcement get, was good news? Okay. Wait. The Webby Awards are here. <laughs> Be- best internet acronym goes to Sydney McElroy. God, see, congratulations. <laughs> no, sorry. I'm reading it here. Most improved, but still huge achievement. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but that's not what the whole show is about. We do we do want to talk about medical history and something, Justin. You asked me about kind of tied in to vaccines uh, and the COVID vaccine and the fact that it is flu vaccine season and everybody should be getting their flu shot. I, I realized that I am I am our most prolific Sawbones uh, uh, episode suggester. Uh-huh, that's mainly true. Mainly because I have so many gaps in my understanding of the world around me that I am frequently plagued by like, wait, Sid, Sid, how do we know that we could squirt medicine into people how do we do that how do we figure it out well it's really interesting you asked me about the history of hypodermic needles and i it was something i'd never really thought about investigating i i don't know why that i'm so curious about diseases and treatments but like the equipment didn't occur to me as an area of interest but it definitely is and there's a whole history there and a lot of people have written about it so it's not it's not a wild question to ask how did we come up with the idea of a needle, what brain conceived of it? Because I think they're so terrifying to so many people, yeah. right? Like it's a, it's yep. a, it's a, 
it's a fear. That's what prompted my thought of it as our daughter has a real, our oldest daughter, Charlie, has a real genuine phobia when it comes to needles. And mm-hmm. I guess in my bad parenting brain, I was thinking that if like, if I knew the history of how bad it used to be, then maybe that would impress upon her the value of the current uh, system. She, I, the, now saying it out loud, fellow parents, I realize this is a faulty plan. No, I think if I, as I'm going to share this information with you, I think if we told her how it used to be, it would just further terrify her of all of it. I don't think she'd be grateful for the modern needle. How very, she calls, how very American. She calls the flu shot the fsh. The fsh, because she doesn't want to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and she, she is also stridently <laughs> Made it known to anyone who will listen that she will not be getting the COVID vaccine when it's available. She'll tell uh, anybody, I'm not getting that vaccine. Spoilers. We got an anti-vaxxer right now. <laughs> spoilers. She will. She will. Uh, Narrator. And she did. She will. <laughs> she did get her flu shot. Um, and she actually afterwards made the point of saying it really wasn't that bad. We made her film a video. Remember? <laughs> there, there's a little parenting tip for you. Yeah. There's a video of her saying, future Charlie, the flu shot was not that bad. And I set a calendar reminder to myself <laughs> on October 1st to remember that that video exists. So when she gets worked up about it, I'll I'll be ready with that uh, with that flu we shot. We need video. to set it sooner. Yeah, we might I'll need to get it. it soon. I'll bump it up. Yeah, right. We're gonna try Should to get it sooner next year. First. Anyway, anyway, so the idea of a hollow tube to deliver things into people is not new, as you may imagine. It's an ancient idea. The word syringe. Do you, are you interested in the word syringe? Yeah, obviously. Which, I'm here, aren't I? Syringe, I think a lot of people use the term syringe to talk about, like, the whole thing, right? Like the... Yeah. The needle attached to the barrel with the plunger and the whole thing together is a syringe. I mean, as you know, if you've ever, like, given a child or an animal medicine, the plastic thing that you deliver it in is the syringe and there's no needle on the end right um so the needle is not necessarily but i think in our minds we tend to tie it all together the word syringe comes from the greek syrinx for a pan flute why why is it well it's hollow i guess that makes sense this is tied to i found this uh myth where all this comes from i put a little picture in there no, thanks, Sid. Pan. Yeah. I see a little. There I've never. Notes. You've never There's a put a picture of Pan. You've never put a picture in the notes before. This is really something a real AV component for everybody <laughs> to enjoy. I'm really, uh, I'm really growing. Me. I'm yeah. really growing. Uh, Syrinx was a nymph in uh, Greek mythology, um, and the god Pan tried to seduce her, so she was like running away from him, and she asked some river nymphs to help her hide escape get away from the god pan and they turned her into reeds Hmm. these myths are always so a lot a lot there's just a lot there anyway she turned into these reeds uh that would make a horrible sound i guess was the idea but instead pan took the reeds and cut them into the pan flute which he is often pictured with you see pan and he's holding the little yeah flute thing anyway there you go there's syrinx there's syringe there's the whole history of that in case you're interested <laughs> got it i am i took a class in high school on greek mythology mm-hmm. i find this stuff fascinating mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you don't okay mm-hmm. moving on uh, uh early greek physicians were I'm inspired allowed to not be interested in some things mm-hmm. that's okay i'm a roman myths guy myself you want to talk about hades we can talk about hades <laughs> that's true i'm not interested in woodworking so that's true there we go daddy does woodworking mommy loves greek myths greek mythology among other things 
Uh, early Greek physicians were inspired by snake venom, by the idea that uh, somehow in a snake bite, they're delivering venom. Oh, that makes sense. And so the idea of delivering, and a lot of these were like not, again, the syringe did not have a needle necessarily attached. It was more like the idea of delivering a precise amount of an ointment or something to a site on the body or an open wound or something, as opposed to any sort of like puncturing sharp instrument attached to the end. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Really think about, that's why I want to conjure up that image of the way that you draw up like a child, like a child's medicine, or I assume it's the same for animals, but like, it's not the needle. It's just the syringe part. That's why I'm kind of driving that home. Is Got that it. that idea came before? Okay. Um, the first attempt at actually using a needle to inject something into someone, so to speak, a hollow needle. Yes. Okay. Like the idea of of uh, the whole unit, not yeah. just like let's squirt some stuff in the right place, but the idea of like an injection, so to speak. Um, we really trace back to 15, 1656. And I'm going to preface this story with the dog lives. Don't worry. <laughs> I know our audience. The dog lives. Don't worry. Uh, the dog does not die at this time. No. Um, the first that was the first person to be injected was a dog. Now, honey, I want I need you to <laughs> let's take a trip back. I'm going to back of the car up. And we're going to look at that sentence one more time. You let me know if there's any problems with it. I don't want to say thing because that's that's I mean it's a dog it's you an animal. You can't say person though. Okay, well that one's taken. <laughs> the first being living sure. being creature mammal not person. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> it's it's a point where it's a point where sensitivity goes too far. It's when you just start wow. boldly proclaiming all dogs are people. I try to be care. I'm a cat person, but I try to be uh, careful and yeah. sensitive to the needs of dog people. Yeah, you know. Anyway, as, as all good jellicles should. <laughs> Christopher Wren, a scientist and philosopher and founding member of the Royal Society of London, did these explorations initially. Um, the Royal Society, by the way, I was I didn't know much about it. I think uh, probably a lot of people do, but I didn't I don't know much about the origins of the Royal Society. But basically it was sort of like an informal group of guys. They were guys in the beginning, um, who got together and sort of talked about stuff. Mm. You know, just like guy science. Stuff. Guy and, stuff. No, I don't I mean maybe that too, I don't know. But like understanding of the natural and biological world and all that kind of thing and usually ended up like and probably cars you know guys <laughs> you get a bunch of guys together well it's 1656 oh yeah we're gonna be <laughs> talking about cars gearheads what do you guys imagine cars will be like <laughs> let's talk about and um, what kind of posters of cars we'll have <laughs> with girls in them <laughs> and then we'll sell them at book fairs in the future <laughs> Uh, anyway, in, they would usually end up at the pub by the close of the night, you know. my What I'm getting at here is I wish I was 
there. There. You wish I you would, were there. I, w- I want to Got go it. to there and be part of this. This feels like a place that I belong. Yeah. You would actually. Historically. Hilariously, <laughs> you would be the one in that group that knew the most about cars. So that would actually be, you'd be a uh, cock of the walk there. I would blow their minds with my uh, book fair poster, car poster knowledge. <laughs> I bring to you a vision from the future. It is a babe. A babe on a smoking hot rod. And then I would unroll it and it would accidentally be one of the cat posters from the book fair. And I'd go, oh, <laughs> no, shoot. dang it. You guys have cats, right? And then they would all laugh and go, oh, he's hanging in there. Look. <laughs> we love it. And Leonardo da Vinci is just like feverishly uh, taking notes. This is the vision I am in the waiting <laughs> for. all over the place. Here. Hang in there to the get says. <laughs> okay. Okay. Huzzah. So basically after one meeting. Ren, after they, this I don't why know. why we don't branch don't out into he, other kinds of history. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We're just, wow. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realize <laughs> this was such a rowdy one. become an episode of Doctor Who. The election. Doctor Who or Bill and Ted. Yeah. I don't know. One of the two. Uh, after, after one of the meetings, Ren decided to try out some of the theories that they had been discussing. So I don't know that he had been having a few at the pub or not. We're going to say, we don't know. He may have quaffed a pint. Okay. Uh, but he was... They were talking about putting substances directly into the blood of a person. Like, could you, like an injection, could you inject something into somebody? Is that possible? How would you do it? Um, whether that be for like poisoning or something not nefarious, like something positive. And so he decided to try it out on a dog. and Which he, lives. <laughs> yes, which does live. And he described it like this. <laughs> this is, these are his words. I have injected wine and ale in a living dog into the mass of blood by a vein in good quantities till I have made him extremely drunk, but soon after he pisseth it out. And so kids are here wondering where Spuds McKenzie came from. <laughs> there it is. There's the origin story right there. The story What's of the dog. Other, uh, uh, high 30s, low 40s. Uh, <laughs> listeners that enjoyed the Spuds McKenzie. <laughs> The story of the dog is that uh, I, I maybe he had a hangover. I don't really know that part, but he lived. He was fine. He recovered just fine from this experiment. Uh, grew old and fat, and I think was stolen later. But I would we'll say I would have stolen party dog if I could have. <laughs> Are you kidding me? But this guy knows how to hold his booze. He he survived his night of scientific fame and drunkenness, and is is and was fine. Um, but the this early attempt was an IV injection, right? Intravenous. So they were actually trying to put it, which is not exactly what we're talking about with shots, but... Um, Can you it, draw a distinction there? Well, when you get a, when you get your flu shot, for instance, yeah. or another vaccine, or your fish, they're not putting it in a vein, right? Right. Think about it. I don't, I don't. They're just sticking it in the muscle. Okay. It's an IM, intramuscular injection. Okay. All right. Uh, they're not putting it IV, intravenous, in okay. a vein. All right. Go. Got it. Yeah, because you don't you don't need to have a vaccine delivered into your bloodstream. I'll, I'll take it though. When you get when you uh same thing it, with insulin does not it's not an injection that you get in your bloodstream like when um a person has to give themselves an insulin shot at home or someone has to give someone an insulin shot at home, they're not delivering that into their bloodstream. They're putting it subcutaneously. Mm-hmm. Just down into the subcutaneous tissue. Um if you get a medicine while you're in the hospital through your IV, that is an intravenous Got medication. It. So, like antibiotics might be delivered that way, among many other things. Anyway, so these early attempts were, were mainly IV injections, uh, intravenous, and they were basically, you would get a quill, because they're hollow, 
and some sort of animal bladder attached to the quill to hold whatever substance, I guess in this case, wine and ale. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe Wren later uh, repeated this with like uh, basically opium. It was like poppy juice, but it was it. opium. Um, and you actually at this point would have to make an incision because you think about a quill, that's a lot to puncture. I mean, quills aren't that sharp. I guess you could maybe file them. I don't really know. But you would make, you would actually cut open to get to the vein and then use the quill to puncture the vein and then deliver it from the animal bladder. Um, And usually they were, the early experiments were done with pain medications. That's where a lot of, a lot of these things were tried was, there was no idea, like what else would you want to put in somebody? We didn't have a lot of medicines. (laughs) We didn't really know what we were doing. So the only things you would try these with were like, I don't know, maybe here's some alcohol numbs the pain. Here's some alcohol or this. We're figuring out that this opium stuff is pretty cool. So like maybe we give that to people. We almost kind of had the tool before we had the application for the tool. Exactly. We didn't really know what to do with it. Um, And so it really didn't take into the mainstream for like 200 more years, especially because if you imagine these early experiments, all of a sudden we know how to deliver something like opium directly into the bloodstream, but we have no idea what the effects will be, how much, or the other effects of it. Some of these early experiments were quite catastrophic and kind of pushed physicians away from this. Yeah. Um, and said, well, let's not, let's not do this. So it wasn't until June of 1844, an Irish physician named Francis Rind injected morphine into like the face, the side of the face around the cheek area of a patient who was in a great deal of pain. And for some reason, like he did it in June of 1844, but then it was not published, uh, like an account of it wasn't published until March of 1845 Hmm. when there was an article in the newspaper, like nine months later about it, um, where he detailed like how he did it and how he used like a hollow metal tube and introduced the medication with a syringe. So this is like the first account of somebody applying it in a way that actually helped and wasn't just to figure stuff out and all of that kind of culminated in two doctors sort of simultaneously you know that happens we've talked about that on the show before where like an like a discovery will be made by two different parties almost at the exact same time and it makes it hard to know who it's a phenomenon mm -hmm, who really made it first but uh the but two different doctors kind of discover what we think of as the hypodermic needle as we know it today, there was a French doctor named Charles Provaz who gave a sheep that was bleeding some sort of substance to make it stop a coagulant. Um, and around that same time, there was a Scottish doctor named Alexander Wood who gave a, a human some morphine. And both of them used what we would kind of think of as the hypodermic needle as we know it today. Um, Wood generally gets the credit for it although he didn't call it hypodermic he called it a subcutaneous needle the word hypodermic comes from a british physician this is all over the place this is like yeah. a really we're all coming like, together global effort to come up with this thing charles hunter who uh he actually argued with wood he was a contemporary and he said you know i, I like this thing you got going on i'm gonna call it a hypodermic needle i'm not gonna call it subcutaneous i'm gonna call it something else and my name's gonna stick by the way i've looked into the future and that's the one <laughs> Trust me. we're gonna use but also um, wait till you find out about cars <laughs> he argued that wood said you could only put the pain medication where you wanted it to work mm. so like you had to deliver medications locally to the site of injury or whatever whereas Hunter said, you know, I think you could just inject morphine into somebody anywhere and it would probably. Seems like you could attest to that really easily, right? Well, I mean, I think that 
they did and hunter was right and that was borne out eventually but wood gets the credit for the needle one way or the other um he refined the device so that the needle was smaller the original barrel of these needles the original of the syringe you know you think about the big hollow part where the medicine goes um it was hard rubber and the plunger the part that you you know used to squirt was made of um leather Mm, wow yeah and they would have like oiled leather at the top to try to create a seal because right you got to have a seal if you think about it if you if you think about a syringe there's the barrel and there's the plunger part that you squirt it with but there's got to be like what we think of now as like a little rubber seal part at the top of the plunger or else the medicine would just fall out right it's got to be it's true (laughs) it's got to be sealed so they would use like an oiled leather um so the medicine wouldn't leak out but all of this you can imagine was kind of cumbersome because leather can warp and change as it dries as it's stored temperature and all that you lose suction um so eventually they replaced the whole thing with metal Mm. which was good in that it was a lot more stable but bad in that you can't see through metal i mean you can't no i can't and even superman has trouble with lead so you couldn't really see how much medicine you were giving people. Yeah. So they, they made marks on the plunger so you could kind of tell how much, but like it's none of this is like, yeah. right, yeah. this is not ideal. Also, so if there's bubbles in there, you wouldn't be able to see. Sure, you want to see what you're doing. So eventually glass became the default. You can see through it, it doesn't warp easily. You can see where that would be the easiest way to do it. And in, in World War II specifically, there was a version called a Siret that was popular. And this was like this little preloaded syringe Single serving morphine exactly and you I could just, just video games well there you go you give somebody a syret and it, you knew exactly how much you were giving them for pain relief in the field and you would just have those kind of stocked so you wouldn't have to take the time to like get out the syringe draw uh, up the yeah. morphine all that kind of stuff um and this was followed with the introduction of glass syringes with detachable needles so that the whole thing wasn't one unit you could take off the needle you could you know though easier to store and um you know you could use multiple different parts on different you know what i mean they're mm-hmm. all they're all interchangeable um the first mass production of them uh for delivery was for the polio vaccine that was the first time that we made a ton of these all at once in 1954 after salt created the polio vaccine that's when you first see these things like made in mass quantities yeah um and only a couple of years after that there was a new zealand uh pharmacist inventor colin albert murdoch who made the first plastic syringe um which was refined into what we think of today as a hypodermic needle a plastic disposable syringe a separate needle all single use yada yada they should have started with the plastic syringe that's obviously the best one well (laughs) we got it sorry sorry so about your luck we didn't have plastic should ask the j-man or cars or book fairs or maybe i don't know we may have had book fairs i don't really have had book fairs uh, but of course there were some problems. Bu- they were so hard to uh, create that it was literally a book fair. Everybody would come for the one book that they had. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray for the book. Uh, it's done. <laughs> Don't drop it. I'll be there, there forever issues, to illuminate. There are issues that arise with this. But before we talk about that, let's go to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky 
podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool, think of it as the palette. The palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts. And that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? Pre-prepared, all I got at two minutes, I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. This is the part that Charlie would like where you admit that there's a bunch of problems with syringes. No, I just the mean... dark underbelly. It's, it's interesting... To, it was interesting to me because like the history of the development of the syringe is a lot like I would imagine the history of the development of any technology cars where you for example <laughs> I don't I'm not going to use the example of cars because I don't know enough I mean I know I know about cars like I know what you know what I mean yeah. I'm not like a car person anyway the the idea of like we think we could put something directly into a human, but we don't know exactly how to do it. And so we come up with one thing and it sort of works and then you gradually refine it. And then as materials become available, I mean, that's like everything, right? Like right. as we knew better how to shape things out of metal and out of glass and then eventually with the invention of plastic, like none of this is much different than a lot of technologies that have been refined, right? What was interesting to me is that there were a couple problems that are that are medical and, and relevant historically that would arise with the invention 
of the hypodermic needle as we know it today, um, especially once they got to something that could be mass produced and easily interchangeable parts and all that kind of stuff that has great like social relevance, medical relevance as we move forward beyond just like, good job, you made the best version of the thing. Um, first, doctors didn't immediately understand like infection. Ah. And why, if you didn't really understand germs or infection, why would you think you needed a different needle for different people? Yeah, um, yeah, that seems bad. Yeah, so this was this was one issue is when you first had a hypodermic needle, it was like this great new tool for physicians to use and they were very excited and wanted to use it on a lot of people and use it on a lot of people. So this was one problem that quickly arose. Now, of course, it didn't take us, it wasn't long after the invention of an easily available, I mean, because just because these ideas were in, existed in the 1600s didn't mean anybody had access to them. By the time we had these easily available mass-produced vaccines, or I mean, hypodermic needles, we did understand germ theory and that kind of thing. So that problem was not long, um, but this did need to be understood. Secondly, the quick relief of pain that you get when you give someone an injection of, like morphine was the big standard in the beginning, is so, um, I mean, it's it's such a great thing for a physician to be able to do. Think about how little we could do before that. Yeah. <laughs> that could provide a patient with immediate relief or a cure or any, I mean, like, we were so um, lost in the woods with so many things to have, you can come into my office in pain, I can pick up this syringe of medicine and give you an injection and immediately solve your problem became a little too tempting to use it all the time which is exactly what we see is that uh there was this sort of overuse mm. of morphine by injection as a default because there just weren't and we talk about this on the show a lot like we're we move through this period of history where everybody got a lot of opium all the time and all their medicines whether they be from doctors or from the patent medicine salesman who came to your town yeah. um because it did something you know and a lot of medicines didn't. Yeah. Uh, so there was a lot of overuse. And this led to the third issue, which is addiction really starts to become a problem as hypodermic needles, at first as morphine is introduced to the public and more people experience opioids. But then secondly, as uh, syringes become easier to make and more widely available. So you have people who are getting a taste for it. And, also they and can then they can the buy the syringes. Yeah, exactly. Um, because before that, if it was just something that maybe your doctor had one of, it would be really hard to give yourself an injection. Yeah. But once that they were something that you could buy. Um, so with, with that, we have more patients suffering from substance use disorder. Um, and as they became addicted to morphine, they had the tools. So, so all these problems sort of arise with the hypodermic needle. I think that's a really interesting social history because at the same time as we have this amazing medical advancement that makes it possible to treat people in a whole new way. And like really the end of the hypodermic needle story, well, not the end, but the for me, the culmination is the vaccine. It right. makes a vaccine easily deliverable, you know? I mean, if you think about the process of like variolation where we have to, in order to in, like inoculate you against a disease we have to cut you Ugh, yeah. yeah and then like rub substances into you and like the way that we used to do it <laughs> before we could just give you a shot yeah so it's it's this huge advancement but then obviously that there are these 
unintended side effects sure. from it. Always are. So now we have these plastic interchangeable pieces. We have stainless steel needles. Um, you will see glass syringes still occasionally for certain medicines. They're just certain mm. substances that do better in, in glass. Um, so you will find those and you'll see medicines that do come. I see them mainly in like these little preloaded syringes. Those do exist. They're not morphine. I mean, they could be, but mm. the ones that I am most familiar with are, are certain vaccines. You'll see these little preloaded vaccines that come they save the syringes is it just the needles that get swapped out everything gets everything seems bad for the planet everything <laughs> uh everything single use that's a problem number four I that mean, i just came up with you could now i say that you could autoclave things for sure yeah but that was the thing i was thinking <laughs> about was autoclave yeah um but a lot of a lot of but what, that's so f- f- slow there's expensive. a lot of stuff that's single use yeah yeah, no, then that, I mean, I don't yeah. um, and then, but the advantage of like the, the preloaded stuff though, is that the alternative is you have the little glass vials and, um, those work. Like you can have a substance in a glass vial, you draw some out of it, inject into the person and you can use that glass vial on more than one person. Yeah. As long as you're cleaning it and everything. So, but, um, those are the two ways you could do it. Uh, needles, in case you're interested, we talk a lot about in the medical world, the size of needles, the gauge, the gauge of needles. Wire is the same way. That's the only reason I know. Well, then you can describe what is gauge. Gauge is the, uh, diameter of the, the instrument that you're using, be it wire or syringe. So how how thick it is. Exactly. In a syringe, we're talking about sort of the opening. And in in wiring, the lower the gauge, the bigger the Mm -hmm. thing. Same thing. Okay. Same thing. Um, So that's part of it. And then the length is the other part of it. And that matters because, as I talked about, some things we inject in the muscle, which would need to be a little longer. I am. Exactly. Some things are subcutaneous. SC. There you go, which just go into the subcutaneous tissue. There's intradermal. Id. Sure, id. Uh, like um, if you've ever had to have a t- tuberculosis test, a TB test. Yeah, I think I have. And it goes okay. right there under the skin. You make a little bubble. Um, and then there's also, of course, intravenous IV things, which would go in the vein. Um, and we even need needles that can. You didn't let me say Sorry. It's all right. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> and we even need needle, needles that can go all the way into the bone marrow, IO, intraosseous. Um, and we have all those different lengths and different gauges. The different gauges, by the way, are in part because different substances have different viscosity. Mm. And so you need the the gauge to be, you need it to be larger, which would mean the number is smaller, <laughs> in order for a thicker, more viscous substance to be pulled through the needle. Otherwise, it just won't. Same thing with wiring. If you have thick, juicy electricity, you need <laughs> lower gauge. Um, an example of a sub Q injection, like I said, would be like insulin and you would use like a 30 gauge needle, like a really tiny gauge. Um, and if you've ever seen like an insulin needle, insulin syringe, it's a little, it's a tiny little deal, um, where like your flu shot that you got or should get, if you haven't gotten yet, you could use like a 22 gauge because it goes in the muscle there. Um, in case you're curious, I, I have found that this isn't always widely known. Maybe you already know it, but just in case, when you have an intravenous line placed, an IV line placed, they use a needle to puncture your vein, right? Right. They use, they don't leave the needle there. Yeah, when you told me that, it really kind of shook my world. This is part of why I wanted to say this. The needle gets removed and what's left in place is like a little flexible catheter thing inside your vein, mm. not the needle. 
the needle is just to introduce it. It's crazy. Yes. So, I well, I feel like that that's worth knowing because for me, when I learned that a long time ago, it took away a little bit of a, the fear of an IV. Yeah. Because I yeah. always used to think once you have Ooh. an IV in place, you have to hold really still or else you'll accidentally poke yourself with it or something. <laughs> and then when I learned that, I was like, oh, okay. Well, I mean, you still shouldn't like... I don't know why you've got the IV, but don't like go wild with that arm. Don't yeah. like wave it all over the place or anything. Yeah. But, but I don't know. That brought me some comfort. Um, and on another side note, uh, I think I was thinking for our episode next week because there's a whole other history of the needle that we haven't gotten into, and that's the history of needle exchange programs, mm. uh, which I think pairs well with everything Classic we've been talking combo. about. Yeah. So Love I think it. I think we need to talk about. Um, why they are evidence-based and effective uh, public health tools. Um, but the reason we talked about needles, the reason we wanted to get into this is because there was this big announcement just this past week uh, about progress made on a COVID vaccine from Pfizer and Bi- BioNTech, BioNTech. Do you think that's how they, they have that capital in there. So I don't know. Bi- BioNTech. 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 Sure. Let's go that. Uh, so the results that they have announced are preliminary results, but they're very positive results from their phase three vaccine trials. And all this is actually, I think from what I've read is even kind of a surprise to them because the way that they were doing this, they were applying initially for these special, like they were going to release data to independent, um, like, uh, reviewers as the process went a lot earlier than normal to try to accelerate things. And they actually have backed off from that, not for any reason other than just like, we're not going to do that. We're just going to kind of go by the books. And they have gotten the preliminary results are way more positive than I think even they expected. Um, They are seeing that patients who get two doses three weeks apart have 90% fewer COVID cases than patients who receive the placebo. Wow. Which is huge. We thought maybe 60 to 70%. So, and of course, this is not the final result that might change somewhat, but this is really positive early stuff. Um, They're still in phase three. They are not going to apply for emergency use authorization. That's what we're waiting for. And you'll see that if you see like um, people within the medical world talking about it, they'll call it their EUA, emergency use authorization. That is the moment where like, Make your dinner reservations. (laughs) It's good to go. Go get your football. Not when they apply for it, but when they get that. Apply for it. No, when they get that. That is the big like. That's that's the big hurt. Now there's a ton of other hurdles past that, but like that's what we're waiting for is the when one of these vaccines gets emergency use authorization to go for it, Um, and they're not going to apply for that. They haven't yet, and they're not going to until half of their participants have been observed for side effects for two months after their second dose. Mm -hmm. So after they receive both doses, we wait two months, and when half of the participants have been observed for that period of time and, you know, have not, have done well, (laughs) have not had problems, then they will apply for the emergency use authorization. They, that, that should happen around the third week of November. Okay. So very soon. Very soon. Very soon. But this is all... And that should be it for COVID. This is good news. This is good news. Now, we still need more time to see how effective the vaccine is in preventing severe cases, preventing deaths, all that stuff. You can't bear that out in just 
you know, these early months of data and stuff. Um, there are side effects, but nothing too serious to suggest that the risks outweigh the benefits. So far, they're talking about things like fevers, chills, body aches, the, you know, sort of what we expect. Um, and if uh, the vaccine is approved soon, there's still the distribution hurdle. So again, this is the other piece of it that has to happen is once, yes, you can give this to people, they have to make it and then find a way to give it. Mm. Like, how do we get it? How What channels do we use for distribution? Who gets it first? How do we stratify that? All that. Now, it, what has been happening the last few months, hopefully, is that all those plans have be, been put in place. <laughs> hopefully. Um, that yeah, is. Yeah, we hope, right? That is what has supposedly been happening at various levels of government. I mean, I know I will personally say that through my own employer, I've received not like a plan, like a concrete plan, but like the beginnings of information. I know that we're talking about it. Yeah. And I know I'm not the only one across the country who is getting this sort of like, get ready. This is coming. We're going to notify you as soon as it's available, blah, blah, blah. Like, so obviously people are thinking ahead and planning and preparing. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hopeful. But the the nitty gritty is that to give this vaccine to all the people who need it is going to take some time yeah, and a lot of effort. Um, they project that they could have 50 million doses available by the end of the year and then uh, 1.3 billion next year. Yeah. I've um, heard a lot of talk about protecting our podcasters being <laughs> sort of a top priority. So I, I assume that's you, me, um, and then we'll kind of figure out the other 49,999,998 after that. You think so? You think yeah. that's you think that'll be the there's a lot of you can read out there there's a lot of literature suggesting how we risk stratify this, how we who gets it um because it has to be an equitable distribution. It can't it's tough uh because while some of the vaccines were made using a lot of government funding, which you would think would ensure that it's not just like because it's not all for-profit funding, then maybe you could have some influence over how it's distributed. Yeah. The Pfizer vaccine actually did not, it was not part of Operation Warp Speed and did not receive funding on the front end. Now, they have agreed, like the plan was that they were going to receive government funding in the distribution phase. Yeah. So that moving forward, they would receive government funding. Um, my understanding is that they haven't as of yet. Okay. So, uh, but I mean, there is no suggestion as a, at this point that it's going to be something that like, if you're rich enough, you could buy. Let's hope, let's hope we keep with that. Right. Well, that's what that's, and it shouldn't be. That's the right yeah. idea is that it should be something where we stratify, and this is going to sound really selfish. Healthcare workers first, <laughs> say it, Dr. McElroy. Yes. I I know. Sydney and I, all our upper crust friends. No, I know that sounds really, but like I... I, I work looking, I work in a hospital. <laughs> I'm looking forward to never leaving the house once you're vaccinated and I am not. I will not be going anywhere. I, I don't go anywhere right now, but I will not go anywhere. I hope you're looking forward to going to uh, 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 the hardware store to pick up lumber. <laughs> that, is, that is where we'll find ourselves. The immune Dr. McElroy. Uh, I, I, my understanding is that top the top tier are going to be frontline healthcare workers. And... 
at risk high risk populations are way up there too so that would be people over a certain age limit i don't know what the cutoff is going to be and people with certain chronic diseases is there a possibility of i we've probably talked about this but is there a possibility of there being another vaccine yes to support these numbers like different distribution channels and different manufacturing pipelines and stuff like that uh my and this is just me based on everything i've read about it so this is my personal opinion not only do i think there's a possibility i think absolutely there will be multiple vaccines available and and being distributed so that these numbers that i just gave you for this vaccine will not be all the covid vaccine that is available there will be other companies who will receive these emergency use authorizations later maybe maybe i don't know how soon maybe even others by the end of the year but i think definitely moving into early next year who will start distributing their vaccines too so i I, this will my guess is maybe this is the one some of us who are frontline healthcare workers get but there will be other vaccines that you might get i'm sorry justin you're lower risk i have to imagine you would be lower down you're saying that that because i'm incredibly physically fit (laughs) uh but the but there are plans in place to make sure that we can get it out there equitably to the people who need it most to the highest risk populations and healthcare workers and so on hopefully that is the plan thank you so much for listening to our podcast we hope you've enjoyed yourself hope you're looking forward to that uh covid vaccine but also again right now you're staying safe staying home uh looking out for people reminding your family members especially those in vulnerable populations to to please try to be as safe as possible yeah i know it's tough because we're going into the holiday season and a lot of people want to gather i understand that impulse um but i've seen a lot of people say if you choose not to gather with your family members next year it might be a way of guaranteeing that we can all be here or this year we can all be here next year to gather with your family members so not guaranteeing i mean pianos drop on okay. people all well the time. you know what i'm saying Meteors, like i know tsunamis. it's hard i know it's hard i <laughs> but i would really advise like this is the time to be as cautious as you've ever been during this pandemic and if you have never been cautious during this pandemic I can't believe you listened to our show. Yeah, welcome <laughs> to your first episode of Sawbones. But uh, do it now. Now yeah. is the time. And Thank- end is in sight. Thanks to the taxpayers for the use of their themes, sorrow medicines. It's the intro and outro of our program. Thanks to Max Fun Network for having us on. And thanks to you for listening. We really appreciate you very much. That is going to do it for us. But uh, be sure to join us again next week for Sawbones. Until then, and, my name is Justin. Oh. And get your flu shot. Get your flu you didn't shot. say that. Get your flu shot. Get your flu shot. Get your flu shot. Um, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. All right. Yeah. org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported. Listen, I'm a hotshot Hollywood movie producer. You have until I finish my glass of kombucha to pitch me your idea. Go. All right, it's called Who Shot Ya? A movie podcast that isn't just a bunch of straight white dudes. I'm Ify Whitey the new host of the show, and a certified BBN. BBN? Buff black nerd. I'm Alonzo Duraldi, an elderly gay and legit film critic who wrote a book on Christmas movies. I'm Drea Clark, a loud white lady from Minnesota. Each week, we talk about a new movie in theaters and all the important issues going on in the film 
industry. It's like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner meets cruising. And if it helps seal the deal, I can flex my muscles while we record each episode. I'm sorry, this is a podcast? I'm a movie producer. How did you get in here? Iffy, quick, start flexing. Bicep, lats, chest. Who shot you? Dropping every Friday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.